You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. This is a vote that reminds us of 1994, because in 1994, our people were just as excited as this. But are all South Africans as into today's election as South Africa's president? My guests Nina Schick and Lance Price will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Brexit, which we're still doing apparently for some reason, Mike Pompeo's standing up of Angela Merkel, and the airline that is really very serious indeed about you paying attention to the safety briefing. That's all to come on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the broadcaster and political commentator Nina Schick and Lance Price, author of four books, including Where Power Lies and former special advisor to UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Welcome both. And we will start with South Africa, which is voting today in parliamentary elections, which the ANC will win. Right there, of course, is the problem. For all of the 25 years since the end of apartheid, South Africa has functioned as a curious political anomaly, the one-party democracy. If the ANC's court century in charge has been good for South Africa. It's certainly been an improvement on what preceded it. It hasn't been good for the ANC, which in the manner of unchallenged hegemons has grown complacent and crooked. Um, Nina, first of all, is there the faintest chance of an upset? I think that the uh, the ANC obviously won't do as well as they think they will. And if they get under 50%, which some polls are suggesting might even be possible. That would be a big deal. That would be a big deal. Um, Well, 25 years ago, the end of apartheid, first free and fair election, quote unquote, in South Africa, when they stormed the polls with 63%. Now, if they're on 50 to 55, which is what polls are suggesting, and if they get below 50, that would be a huge upset. They're still going to have the biggest majority of the vote share, however. And that is still saying something, given the fact that they have suffered terribly from corruption, especially the last nine years under Jacob Zuma. And a part of, I mean, a part of the expectation of the ANC when they first came into power was undeliverable, right? I mean, they came Mm. in on such a wave of optimism and hope that they could completely reform society. And what we've seen in the past quarter of a century is that the poison of apartheid was so much that, you know, that legacy is still hard to overcome. Nonetheless, that does not excuse the ANC from some of the big failings that we've seen in South Africa uh, over the past two and a half decades, um, the corruption we've seen and the inequality of society, which still exists. So I think they'll be punished at the polls for it. Lance, is the question to ask here, really look at, well, should it be asked the other way, as in to ask why it is the ANC are still doing actually as well as they're expected to do? Because as Nina correctly points out, their vote will take a hit, but they will still be in charge off the back of this election unless something insane happens. Why are people still voting for them? Because their record, leaving aside the context of what South Africa used to be like and their role in changing it, is not that impressive. Corruption uh, mm. among the ANC is proverbial. Unemployment in South Africa is running at 27%, as high as 54% among young South Africans who, of course, weren't born uh, when apartheid was a thing or, or don't remember it very well. Why are they still commanding any vote at all? 
They do still have a remarkable organizational ability, and they have very deep roots in in communities all across South Africa. Of course they do. Um, And although the older generation um, will thank them for having been the party responsible for bringing about change in, in, in South Africa, younger people are starting to have doubts about it and are judging them on the on the future promise rather than than what's been delivered in the past. Um, and I think it was quite interesting that clip you played at the beginning where Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, was saying this reminds us of 1994, which was the first post-apartheid election, because actually what it also does is remind people of what hasn't changed since 1994 and the fact that a lot of the promises made then, particularly on um, uh, redistribution of land, but also of economic opportunity within the country, uh, has shown massive disappointment. I mean, there was a, although they very sensibly, I think, from 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 the Mandela years, um, uh, pledged not to expropriate land from from uh, from whites. They did have a, a target of uh, redistributing something like 30% of land from whites to blacks, and it's been less than a third of that. So even now, 73-74% of the land in South Africa is owned owned by whites who make up something like 8% of the population. So your question is right. It's surprising, given that, um, that they still uh, have the stranglehold that they do. I suspect they, I mean, they will be the largest party, undoubtedly. The question really, I think, is whether or not they'll be able to govern by themselves or whether they'll have to have some form of coalition in order to get, uh, um, in order to be able to govern in the next uh, five years, possibly with the challenges from the left, uh, the uh, economic freedom fighters um, who want a much more radical form of, uh, of redistribution. And of course, they act as a sort of pull on the ANC, uh, just as um, uh, some of the radicals within the ANC itself do, put, dragging it to the left. Whereas clearly Cyril Ramaphosa wants to be a modernizer, but he also wants to, and he's, and he's running on a, a, a very strong anti-corruption ticket, which is which is absolutely crucial to their success or failure. And, and just to add to that, I mean, the ANC still has tremendous draw by evoking, you know, the bogeyman of apartheid, even though now new parties that are emerging can claim that, you know, they are the true successors to uh, the legacy of fighting apartheid like the EEF. But traditionally, the ANC has been able to unite a very broad church by saying, you know, they're the the anti-apartheid party. And in South Africa, there is also a split emerging uh, amongst those citizens who are on social welfare or get some assistance from the state and those who do not. 17 million citizens still get some kind of social welfare from the state and they traditionally have voted for the ANC. Now, if you look at the numbers, 26 million voters registered to vote, 17 million of those are, you know, getting some kind of state assistance and would be loyal to the ANC. So even though those numbers are falling, it's still a huge majority of the population that is going to pledge their vote to the ANC, despite all the problems we've seen over the past two and a half decades. Um Lance, you have in your time presided over the the refurbishment of a political party's internal <laughs> culture. Let, let's put it like that. I wonder oh, what I was about to be accused of. There, well, exactly. Yeah, ob- ob- obviously, <laughs> obviously, guilty to that one. Old, old Labour had different institutional deficiencies to the African National Congress. But how hard a thing is that to do to get an organisation with uh, extremely dyed in the wool traditions to which which mean a great deal to the membership uh, to to change its ways? Well, it's not. 
I mean, it's difficult under any circumstances, but it's an awful lot easier when you've been in opposition for 19 years, 18 years, which was the situation with the Labour Party. It had to change. You can make the point that we've been trying this and it's not working for well, us. Well, exactly, yes. <laughs> but I mean, it's much, much harder when you've been in government for 25 years. So to reform a governing party um, is, is extraordinarily difficult because you have all the advantages of incumbency and you've got lots of drags uh, on, on the reform project. Uh, people would say, well, why should we change? We're in power. We can, we can, we can stay in power. Um, but the, uh, the biggest drive to change, I think, certainly in South Africa, is, um, as you were suggesting earlier, is the younger, younger generation, people who, who don't remember life before apartheid, who are concerned about the future, concerned about their jobs, concerned about whether they're going to get a job at all, uh, whether the economy is going to, it's a very sluggish economy, it's mm. been in decline, it's now got 1.3, 1.4% growth or something. Um, uh, so the, a lot of the hopes that were invested in South Africa, which was always the powerhouse of, of Southern Africa, if not the whole continent of, of Africa, uh, have been disappointed. And I think that's where the opposition parties will be, will be playing. OK, well, let's move on now and look at another election happening closer to where we're sitting and in apparent defiance of reason. Yesterday, the UK government wearily confirmed that Britain will stage elections to the European Parliament on May 23rd, nearly three years after the UK voted to leave the European Union. On early form, this will not be a campaign noteworthy for noble, uplifting rhetoric, rigorous and informed discussion of policy minutiae and punctilious respect for one's opponents. Early polls are showing healthy numbers for Nigel Farage's new clue in the name Brexit Party, and much of the coverage so far has been dominated by the willful descent into alt-right ding-battery of Brexit's former standard bearers in UKIP. Um, Nina, those numbers for the Brexit Party, might they, and this is possibly an attempt at optimism, be flattering? Because what if there is a bump in turnout in this election? What if the ludicrousness of this election prompts for the first time in living memory the British people to actually care about a European election? Uh yeah, so I do expect the Brexit party to do well, but you have to look at that result in the context. One, European elections have always been um, a platform for kind of the anti-EU parties to do well, so that trend is set to continue. Well, but that's kind of how we got here, isn't it? The, <laughs> that Brexit or the Brexit UKIP won the European elections effectively exactly. in 2014, I guess. Exactly. In 2014, Nigel Farage has stood to be an MP uh, in the UK many times. I think it's seven times seven. failed. But, you know, he's been elected as an MEP repeatedly over the years. Well, the system well, is different, of course. Well, the electoral system is different, so it's much easier for a small correct, party to correct. get representation. Correct. The, and the second point to make is that I do expect the voter turnout to be elevated because of everything that's happened here for the past two, three years. You actually have a very pro-European active demos in the United Kingdom to the likes of which does not exist in the rest of Europe. So not only will you potentially see a bump in the Brexit voters, uh, Brexit supporting voters, but I expect you'll also see a pro-European turnout. The issue there is that their vote is split, right? If you are an anti-Brexit voter who wants to vote in the European parliamentary elections, who do you vote for? Do you vote for Labour? I mean, we know how Jeremy Corbyn obfuscating and is a Brexiteer, um, is refusing to like clarify his position and whether or not he supports a second referendum. Um, we know that the Conservatives have completely um, upset pro-Remainers. So you, you basically have the pro-Remain vote, which is going to be split between Conservatives, Independent, Labour, Greens, uh, the new party, Change UK. So 
take all of those votes, which and then weigh them up against the Brexit Party vote, and you'll see that there's actually going to be an upsurge in a lot of pro-Remain votes. It's just that their vote is going to be split. Um, Lance, on the subject of Change UK or whatever it is they're calling themselves <laughs> at the moment, it's been a few hours since I last checked. Uh, as as a political operative yourself, h- how much? Uh, of their story so far has made you want to stand in the garden and scream? Well, (laughs) quite a lot of their story so far has made me want to give up coming on programs like this and go and help them (laughs) do something about their communications and 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 their image. I mean, they have a huge opportunity in that there is this huge chasm opening up um, uh, where there are people looking for somewhere else to go to cast their vote. Um, But they have as yet not done very well at um, uh, capitalising on that. Now, they've had disadvantages. They came to the game late. They weren't registered as a political party in time to take part in the local elections in the UK, which we've just had. Uh, So they were not on the field at all, nor was the Brexit Party, I have to say. Mm. But they weren't there, and that could have been a very good uh, springboard for them. Um, And it is very difficult to, 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 to break through. A lot of media coverage is kind of based on previous record, um, your right to money and so on is based on how you've done in previous uh, elections. So they they would like to make this a referendum between uh, basically a a de facto referendum. Um, And they would like the anti-Brexit vote to coalesce around them. But I think they've left it a bit too late to to achieve that. Mm. Um, So it's absolutely right that there will be a a splintering of the anti-Brexit vote. Um, I'm not convinced that there'll be a big boost in turnout, um, partly because people know that this is kind of a fake election, that it is improbable, although not impossible, that the people elected uh, on the 23rd of May will, if they do take their seats at all, will only, Mm -hmm. they'll barely get them warm before they're turfed out because Brexit in some shape or form will go through. No, it may not. Um, But uh, I'm not convinced that the groundswell that there was between the million-person march that we had through London a few weeks ago and the big big, um, uh, uh, petition to revoke uh, Article 50, whether or not there's the same energy that was behind those Mm. things that there is behind the European elections, I would like there to be, but I'm not convinced that there is. Um, Nina, we should contemplate UKIP, probably from the other end of forceps. Um, They seem... I mean, it is even by the formidable standards UKIP have previously established. Their recent behaviour has been bizarre. They seem to be trying to leverage rape jokes as a kind of electoral asset. Um, do you perceive in the in the dissent of UKIP, and again, that's a dissent from what was already a fairly low point rhetorically, um, is this a deliberate tactic or is this just a group of terrible people having some sort of nervous breakdown in public? I think it's both, right? I mean, if you look at some of the characters who are playing politics on the European stage and also on the American stage, um, you know, the unsavory kind of characters who have no integrity, a lot of for a lot of these players, it's all about getting the headlines, making the news, you know, saying the most outrageous things. But do I think that this is some concerted um, effort, you know, communications effort? No, like they are chaotic and they're also probably a lot of them are terrible people. Um, Unfortunately, that is the state of democratic politics right now. And if you look at some of the 
real loonies in UKIP. I mean, you you have to look at some of their colleagues in the European Parliament to see that, you know, there are others there who are even crazier. Um, And that's just one of the side effects of democracy, if you want to call it that. And as I already mentioned, the European Parliament has traditionally been, has always been uh, a platform for these kind of parties to enter the political fray and then, you know, make as much noise as they can. And I think that whatever happens with the election outcome, you know, don't expect them to be quiet. Expect them to make the biggest shebang, the biggest show they will of it, um, even if they don't actually do that much better. Just to follow that up, though, Nina, should some of the stuff that UKIP and its candidates have been saying be just written off as a side effect of politics? Because the the harassment, particularly of their female opposition politicians, has got well past the point of being anything (laughs) you could call a joke. Um, It shouldn't be written off. But does it perhaps need to be regulated? Should standards of behaviour be imposed? Absolutely. I mean, it it shouldn't just be written off and people should face some kind of, you know, if you hold public office, you should face some kind of consequences on your behavior. You can't just behave like this. Unfortunately, because so much of this seems to be going on, it's almost like a a scandal overlord, overload, not overlord, you know, when the president of the... scandal overlord is one of their candidates. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the, 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 the leader of the free world, Donald Trump, has set such a precedent for behavior and how many lies he tells in a day that it's I mean if you it's difficult to I think for past generations to look at the integrity of some of the politicians that we have standing in the arena today um, and wonder how we came to this of course it shouldn't be like this but unfortunately I think that it's so widespread now I don't see any kind of widespread sanctioning or pulling people back into line Well, on that happy thought, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Lance Price and Nina Schick. Coming up next, winning friends and influencing people the Mike Pompeo way. Do come in. Monocle's May issue is our design special, here to help you choose the elements that will make your residence feel like a perfect home. In our review of the very best in class in the design industry, we drop into EF's brand new colourful headquarters, catch some time, with busy city builder Winnie Mass and hitch a ride on a Bauhaus bus. Elsewhere in the issue, we spend a day with Spain's Guardia Civil to make sense of the role of the country's oldest police force when nationalism is a heated topic. And we also ponder if it's all engines go for electric mobility. In our property survey, we chart the world's most interesting developments from Sydney to Ho Chi Minh City and find out a great recipe for co-living. In the culture section, we finally come clean and admit that sometimes it really is okay to judge a book by its cover, especially if it was created by one of the world's best jacket designers. Also in the issue, we meet the entrepreneurs churning out new ideas for Melbourne's vintage milk bars and stay the night in a neoclassical palazzo. Monocle's May issue is on Newsounds now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Lance Price and Nina Schick. Now, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is here in the UK today. Yesterday, however, he was in Baghdad, to which he paid a surprise visit after cancelling at the last minute on German Chancellor Angela Merkel and German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas, who had been expecting to meet him in Berlin. Officially, Germany's reaction to this diplomatic snub has been diplomatic. Unofficially, according to reports, which can only be sourced from official sources wanting to make damn sure everyone knows about it, the Germans are incandescently unimpressed. The Süddeutsche Zeitung, no less, declared the German-American relationship is in tatters. Um, Lance, is that something of an overreaction? I'm not sure that it is. I think that is probably an accurate reflection of what sentiment is, certainly in, in government circles uh, in, in Berlin. Uh, this was a remarkable snub, not least because it was done at the very last minute without any prior warning or or serious explanation. Relations between Germany and and the United States haven't been great, it has to be said, ever since President Trump was elected and Angela Merkel was out there saying, we want to be friends, we want to work together, but we want to do it on the basis of shared values um, and, and shared ideals. And the clear message that she was giving then, and she hasn't changed her tune since, uh, is that she didn't believe that there was uh, a great deal of meeting of minds and a meeting of values between the European Union. And she was speaking really on behalf of the European Union uh, and the United States. So, Relations have been at a pretty low ebb, but this snub will certainly push them even further down. Um, and it also shows, I mean, it's a, it's a diplomatic failure on, on a number of fronts. It's clearly the wrong thing to do, but it's also a, a grave misunderstanding of the way things are done uh, in, in Germany. They're quite formal about the way they go about their politics and about their diplomatic relations. Uh, and so, you know, just thinking, oh, well, hang on, I've got something more important to do. And of course, they do disagree over sanctions mm. towards um, towards Iran. Um, uh, has a bigger impact in Germany than it might perceive to have. If you said that to the American public, they would probably think, oh, well, yeah, sure, he has something more important to do. Um, It's seen as much, much more serious a snub in Germany. Nina, why would the Germans be taking this so seriously? Why wouldn't they just be taking the attitude of, well, he's the US Secretary of State, he's a busy bloke, things come up, these things happen? Well, I think it is fair to say that US-German relations are at their nadir. And uh, for Germany, the US has always been a very, very strategically important partner. They've never forgotten how, you know, with the help of the Marshall Plan, the US helped rebuild Germany in the ashes of the war. But those relationships have been on a rocky and sliding slope even before Trump came into office. You know, even under Obama, uh, the Germans were a little disappointed that Obama wasn't as much as they hoped he could be on issues like the environment, you know, on issues like uh, what was happening with the kind of illicit drone warfare and things like that. But it's fair to say that under Trump, I mean, he has repeatedly been hammering Germany. He and his whole administration, he has a personal vendetta against Angela Merkel. He has, you know, pulled her aside at the G8 summit or G20 summit and basically scolded her about, you know, high German exports to America. He's threatened to put tariffs on German cars. He's scolded and chastised her about German spending on military and defense in NATO meetings. I mean, it's obvious from the president's very public attacks on Angela Merkel that he does not think much of her. And that's filtering through to the administration. So, of course, the entire public debate in Germany, if you look at global politics, is 
pretty anti-Trump and they're not really in love with U.S. foreign policy right now. So this is a huge snub, especially because, as Lance already pointed out, that Germany was trying really hard to keep the Iran nuclear deal on the rails, you know, even though a <laughs> Trump administration has been tr- trying very hard to dismantle it. So the fact that they are snubbing both Angela Merkel and Heiko Maas, then going to Baghdad to be, you know, antagonizing towards Iran is just adding insult to injury, really. Um, and then, of course, coming to Britain, which is about or is trying at least to get itself out of the European Union. So it's, yeah. it's, it's about more than just German. But, but your, your former relations. employer, Lance, you know, again, being prime minister of the United Kingdom and a busy chap must have had to fail to turn up at a thing he said he would turn up at. What's the right way to handle it? I mean, it happens all the time, of course, on a, on a smaller scale, and you're constantly letting people down. But when it comes to foreign trips, I think you have to plan it. It would, it would take a very, very big crisis um, to uh, to reschedule a meeting with a, a leader of the seniority of Angela Merkel. Yeah. Um, and I don't think whatever he got up to in Iraq would qualify uh, on, on that score. So, yes, it, it does happen. But if it happens, the crisis that has caused it to happen is something so obvious that the recipient who was expecting to see you and didn't completely understands why you've done it. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, most people listening to this will at some point have sat through an airline safety briefing, and most people listening to this will have ignored it. Do not, however, exhibit this indifference aboard Air New Zealand. Two passengers have been thrown off an Air New Zealand flight, I should emphasise that the aircraft was on the ground at the time, for refusing to read the safety card or watch the instruction video. The couple, who were sitting in an exit row, apparently preferred to gawp at their phones, despite the pleas of other passengers to pay attention. They refused, at which the aircraft returned to the gate and they were disembarked. Um, Nina, is is this fair enough? Are you a punctilious observer of safety briefings and reader of safety cards? Uh, Well, look, I mean... Mia culpa, there are many times where I have not been listening to the safety brief. I've been listening to my, um, you know, music. Oh, but in this case, I have to say, when I read the story, I felt sympathy for the air attendants because these two people, the offending passengers, were sitting in the exit row. I have sat in the exit row. And then you do have to make a bit of yeah, a show and a dance of like, be- because enough. you're responsible for other people, right? And you're in front of the, the exit that other people might need to take. But then the worst thing is that you know, they were asked and they just apparently refused to look up from their mobile phones, even when other passengers started pleading with them to please pay attention so the plane could just take off already. So in this instance, I, I got to say, um, good that they were booted off because they sound like they were really inconveniencing the I, other I, passengers. I, I kind of wish Air New Zealand had just issued a press <laughs> statement saying, yeah, we threw them off the plane because they were acting like massive jerks. Exactly. <laughs> which, they <were. laughs> which they were. Which which they were. And and for which uh, air crews are entitled to eject passengers. Again, not when the aircraft is actually airborne, although I have in my time uh, seen passengers for whom I would be willing to make an exception on that front. Um, Lance, <laughs> are, are you uh, an assiduous reader of safety? Because it just occurred to me the last safety card I made a point of reading was a UN flight leaving Tbilisi for somewhere else in Georgia about 12 years ago and it was this absolutely antique Tupolev twin prop so old that the safety card I'd noticed to my alarm still had a hammer and sickle emblazoned on the top of it Uh, I committed it all to memory and and clutched it anxiously it was in Russian I trust Uh, it was in it was in Russian Georgian and English oh okay good 
I tried to teach myself the other two languages in order to pass <laughs> the anxious moments. It's actually quite a good way of learning a foreign language. Is to, I mean, I, you know, we, <laughs> <laughs> is to listen to it both in French and English, or Dutch and English, and German and English. Um, do I read them? No, I don't read them. But when I do sit in, the, I'm quite tall. I, I often have the exit seats, and I'm even willing to pay a bit of extra money to EasyJet and Ryanair in order to be able to do that. And when I am sitting in the exit seats, I at least pretend to read it, mm. and I smile at the attendant. And when they ask me whether I'm willing to open the window and all that, I say yes, and and because <laughs> I think that's what you have to you have to do. But um, you know whether it really makes a difference. Most people are, are relatively frequent flyers. Um, uh, some they've heard it time and time and time again. It's always the same. And you know, are quite good actually. They have funny little cartoony characters when they show. Yeah, the videos. those annoy the hell out of me. The, 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 the whimsical amusing <laughs> yeah, safety the briefings. Time, the first time you watch them, they're quite good. So but, I mean, we've all been on flights where you think, what was the point of the safety briefing? I was. It may have been the same plane that you were on. I was on one in, an internal flight in Russia where nobody put on their safety belts uh, and the nice. uh, crew didn't do anything about it. But there were actually pigs and chickens in the aisle um, <laughs> as we as we took off. And I thought this safety briefing is not really going to do me much good. I mean, Nina, to what do you ascribe the the widespread indifference to safety briefings? Is it that most people think you've seen one, you've seen them all, or is is it a suspicion on the part of most airline passengers that really, if something goes wrong, I don't think this or indeed anything else is going to help me. Yeah, I think it's a bit of that. And I think that now, I mean, all of us are such frequent flyers. I mean, how many flights have we taken? And that, thankfully, knock on wood, not, not, nothing nothing has gone pear-shaped for me yet. Um, uh, that may be about to change. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, this, this is going to get you on some sort of oh, list. No. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, if you are literally in big trouble on an aircraft would you having read the safety briefing really make a difference maybe well, if you're sitting in the you know, I don't know we all saw the pictures of the plane that was hit by lightning I, I speak to somebody who's been on a plane that was hit several times by lightning coming into 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 Rio and that was a pretty terrifying experience we saw the plane that was hit by lightning and people clearly you know they were using the escape slides and that made me think I just need to be absolutely clear how to use those escape slides <laughs> uh, and that reminder that air crews are very very well trained for very good reasons does bring us to the end of today's show Nina Schick and Lance Price thank you both for joining us at Midori House the show was produced Produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Helena Jurit. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bechheim. Back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.